For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, here with the latest readout video from our free Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, to which you should subscribe for the latest news and opinion on climate change. Including that the top story this week was supposedly the looming COP28 gathering to bicker and waste time as a stirring prelude to COP29. But what's this? The New York Times Climate Forward whimpers, quote, It's no secret that fossil fuels are still going strong. But a new United Nations-backed report paints an alarming picture of how dramatically coal, oil, and gas production is expected to grow in the coming years. If current projections hold, the United States will drill for more oil and gas in 2030 than at any point in its history, our colleague Hiroku Tabuchi reports. So will Russia and Saudi Arabia, end quote. Why is this happening? Because the world needs energy and alternatives aren't working. So what do you do? Well, if you're the New York Times, you chide and sweat. Quote, Until those basic dynamics change, the world is likely to face more emissions and more intense warming in the years ahead. It's looking really dire, said Nicholas Hagelberg, the UN Environment Program's global coordinator for climate change. We're really on life support here. Block that metaphor. In the real world, whatever apocalypse may loom if it becomes imperceptibly warmer, mostly at the poles, humans are not on life support. Instead, over the last half century, we have been living longer, healthier, more prosperous lives in numbers the doomsayers of a previous generation assured us was, like, literally totally beyond the planet's carrying capacity. So, luckily, the complete futility of COP28 won't mean anything. Not even the delegates, who will do it all again in a year, in luxury. As the Manhattan Contrarian recently noted, quote, Global spending to fight climate change by environmental groups and other nonprofits reached $8 billion in 2021, most of it in the United States and Canada, according to a survey released in September by the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, end quote. Yep, that's billion with a B. So much for deniers having all the money. So, yes... Please do send some if you haven't already. And what has this $8 billion a year bought? Bupkis, apparently. Quote, The supposed green energy transition, widely hyped and massively subsidized for two decades, has suddenly started to crumble on multiple fronts. We are rapidly approaching the green energy wall, end quote. Still, maybe if the alarmists could just get a few billion dollars more so they could turn this thing around. And they will get that money from your government just about no matter where you live. Unlike us. Who, in our unsubsidized way, note a tense exchange before the Canadian House of Commons Ethics Committee in which the chair of the Federal Canada Foundation for Sustainable Development Technology admits that she not only voted for, but herself moved to grant COVID relief payments to a range of companies, including $217,000 to a storage battery firm of which she is, coincidentally, CEO and owner. Reproached by MPs, she sneered, quote, I think you need a refresher on what a conflict of interest really means, end quote. Oh, and how embarrassing is this? The latest scathing report from Canada's Environment Commissioner on the whole-of-government failure to achieve climate goals includes that federal governments are avoiding electric vehicles because they are, drumroll please, too expensive for what you get. Naturally, the Natural Resources Minister burbled that, quote, electric vehicles and the infrastructure obviously are an important part of addressing the climate crisis. It is an important component of reducing in line with what we have committed to the world we would do, end quote. Yeah, 
except for the bit where the target of 80% of the federal motor pool being zero emissions by 2030 is currently at uh, <laughs> uh, 586 out of 17,260 vehicles, or 3%. Meanwhile, if you're wondering why you didn't notice the climate apocalypse, the Atlantic's weekly planet opines that, quote, tiny climate crises are adding up to one big disaster. Billion-dollar disasters are breaking records, but the accumulation of small disasters can be devastating too, end quote. So, we don't need no stinking apocalypse to be proved right. And, of course, there were never small weather disasters before roughly 1988. So there. And now, a word from our sponsor. And yes, again... That's you, all the people out there who are already backing our work and all the people who are subscribing. More than 84,000 of you on YouTube alone, where we've had almost 10 million views. But we need to keep up the momentum. And that's why I interrupt to pass the hat to those of you who aren't already backers and say please make a pledge, one time or monthly, $3, $5, $10, whatever you can afford so we can continue to push back against the climate cult and win this battle. And now, back to me. Meanwhile, from the bulging yellowing, we're all going to die because of Antarctica file, a new paper announces that, quote, ocean-driven melting of floating ice shelves in the Amundsen Sea is currently the main process controlling Antarctica's contribution to sea level rise, end quote. And, based on computer models, quote, mitigation of greenhouse gases now has limited power to prevent ocean warming that could lead to the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, end quote. Mm-hmm. If you trust a model that doesn't even know that melting floating ice has no impact on sea level. Now, here at CDN, we're always happy to see people trying to look at the historical record. But we're not always happy with the results. Like this latest piece blaring, quote, New data suggests 2023 is set to be the warmest in the last 125,000 years after a spate of abnormal weather patterns, end quote. Oh, Really? You have new data on the Holocene Climatic Optimum or the Roman Warm Period? Or do you just believe anything on warming? For instance, there would have been some value in mentioning, if the author knew it, that the entire period from around 16,000 years ago back to 125,000 years ago is of no relevance because it was a glaciation. And if you go back even further than 125,000 years, which the proxies do, you find yourself in the Eemian interglacial, where temperatures are higher than modern ones, though clearly natural, which pretty much rubbishes this whole notion that today's conditions are unprecedented and must be unnatural. And it's not just the Eemian. The previous Labouchet interglacial was a bit warmer than ours, though cooler than the Eemian. But the Purfleet Interglacial, some 337,000 to 300,000 years ago, rivaled the Eemian in temperature, and the Hoxtian, which was around 424,000 to 374,000 years ago, was also warmer than ours. So, clearly, if you look at the actual historical record, current conditions are well within the bounds of natural variability, which is kind of important to the story. Now, that piece also includes, quote, Samantha Burgess, deputy director of the C3S, said October 2023 has seen exceptional temperature anomalies following on from four months of global temperature records being obliterated. We can say with near certainty that 2023 will be the warmest year on record and is currently 1.43 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average. Two decimal places when you're comparing modern thermometer readings to tree rings? Really? 
And what's this? Scientific American, trying to convince us that, quote, Earth just had the hottest 12-month span in recorded history, end quote, says, quote, from November 2020 to October 2023, Earth's temperature was 1.3 degrees Celsius, 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels, end quote. So, is the settled science 1.3 or 1.43 degrees? And what's the margin of error here? Plus, if you're going to sling terms around, please define them, like pre-industrial. We're normally told that the planet is, say, 1.1 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average, which apparently typically means in the year 1850, though the Industrial Revolution actually started around 1776. But regardless of what happened between 1776 and 1850, the reconstructed temperature record in the Holocene, you know, between the Younger Dryas and the Little Ice Age, certainly seems to include mostly years warmer than 1850. Sure, the Dark Ages were cooler, as was the onset of the Iron Age, but the Roman and Minoan warm periods were warmer, and the Holocene climatic optimum was much warmer and longer. So what does this figure about the pre-industrial average actually mean? I mean, again, the entire Pleistocene epoch was pre-industrial, and it featured 2.6 million years of mostly glaciation, so yeah, the average would have been lower than today. But what about the Pliocene, the Miocene, the Eocene, and the Cretaceous? None of those can be measured to two decimal places, but they were certainly warmer than today, and they were clearly pre-industrial. Now, another thing we worry about at CDN, because we're environmentalists, is so many genuine environmental problems are getting shoved aside, and all the money and attention is going to climate change. Things like fishing out the world's oceans which, we might add, is a natural consequence not of capitalism, but of its absence, the lack of defined property rights either in fish or in fishing areas that lets pirates roam, for instance, China's vast and destructive fleet. And it's also odd that for decades environmentalists and other progressives had a major hate on for fish farming, which nevertheless managed to account for more than half the fish consumed globally for nearly a decade. And yeah, we ourselves are uneasy about mass monocultural agriculture, including in the cattle industry and in fish farming. But now the New York Times, in yet another fit of machbarkeit, which is the conviction that anything nature or habit can do, intellectuals can do better, decides that the right climate-friendly way to raise fish is on land. Yep, in concrete tanks with artificial blue light. Never mind those silly old oceans. The Times also says that of more than three pounds of salmon that Americans eat annually per capita, which is dwarfed by 58.9 pounds of beef, quote, about 10 to 20 percent of this is wild Pacific salmon, but the rest is farmed fish raised in open net pens in the ocean, a much criticized system made even more problematic by rising water temperatures and other climate challenges, end quote. Well, since fish farming has outstripped trawling as a source of seafood, it's not entirely clear that rising water temperatures and other climate challenges, like, I don't know, floods, are really hammering the industry. But never mind, because what the Times really frets about is the massive carbon footprint of fish farming. Quote, Because it's most valuable when sold fresh, most of America's farmed salmon imported from Chile and Norway is flown in. Only 2% is farmed domestically, end quote. So, the big issue isn't fish farming, it's fish flying. Which, like the problem of climate alarmists flying to conferences to gabble aimlessly instead of video conferencing, is not exactly unavoidable, though it certainly is odd. Now, another of our preoccupations is how rarely climate science, unlike the normal kind, puts forward testable predictions ahead of time so we can verify its theories or disprove them. And all kinds of people made a giant hoo-ha out of unusual warmth in 2023 after it happened. 
But how many of them told you beforehand that 2023 would break the trend line? And what have they ventured about 2024? So we give a kind of tepid thanks to Star Insider for a feature, quote, cities that could disappear by 2030 due to rising sea levels, end quote, including Venice, Savannah, and Nagoya. And we're going to put forward a June encounter prediction. Not one city on their list will disappear. We also put forward another installment of our ECS in the Real World series, in this case a 2012 paper from Norwegian scientists and statisticians led by Professor Magne Aldrin of the Department of Mathematics at the University of Norway. Their paper wins the prize for the longest title so far, quote, Bayesian estimation of climate sensitivity based on a simple climate model fitted to observations of hemispheric temperatures and global ocean heat content, end quote. But the short version is that using the best-known ocean heat content data, they find that ECS is just 2.0 Celsius, there's that number again, while other plausible ocean data drop it even further. In the newsletter, we also note that the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, better known as the Gulf Stream, although technically the part that hauls warm water from the Caribbean to Europe is just part of the AMOC, has been a thorn in the side of climate modelers for a long time. It's the sort of massive and influential component of climate that they must get right if they're going to say that the science is settled and that they know what's going to happen to it over the next century. But the models don't get it right. And as a new study shows, the more they tweak the models, the worse they get at handling the AMOC if they change at all. Other than that, the science is settled, of course. Finally, from the CO2Science.org archive, we examine another study of whether climate models are right to think that warming would produce a decline in the meridional overturning circulation. And it sure doesn't look like it, because some of the mechanisms they predicted did happen, but the decline didn't. Stupid current. Why won't it do what the computers say? Meanwhile, for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know why people keep burning fossil fuels. They work. That's right.